Hey, 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 uh, friends and countrymen, Michael Martin, my friend, is with me, Mike Sauter, and this, as always, every week is the Regeneration Podcast. How are you doing, Michael? Oh, it's cold. <laughs> it's uh, cold. Literally, how cold, yeah. As I predicted, remember I told, we talked a few shows ago about the barn swallows leaving. Tell me, tell me. Yep. And they left uh, about a month ago. And I and I pointed out that one time they left really early in the middle of August, and that year we had a hard frost on September nineteenth, which is kind of unheard of where I live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they left. I don't know, end of August, beginning of September, and I predicted that it would probably get cold toward toward Michaelmas. And mm-hmm. here we are, a few days, six days from Michaelmas, and we had frost today. Did you have frost? We it didn't. was just it was a little cold, bit. It was just yep. on top of. Of the vehicles, I didn't yeah. see any on the grass, or it didn't kill any any plants. But it was a little touch, and it got done. It was well. I think what I looked at was thirty seven degrees out. Huh. So well, I don't think and, it. And two days ago, it was eighty four. It's going back up for you. Mm, it's going to go to sixty four. I think today. Oh, I thought you said it was going to eighty four. No, today. it was eighty four two days ago. God, right, 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 right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we could you? go. What's uh, I was uh, talking about eighty four. I got back from. I don't think I mentioned it on the podcast, but people who've listened, they know this name, who's a friend of both of ours, Guido Preparata. So I've been in Italy for six days um, at a conference he organized. <laughs> it was, uh, and I've, so it was on Lake Balsena, this conference, it was a festival of money. And you had all these kind of big names. I'm gonna mention Richard Werner, W-E-R-N-E-R. You could Google him on anything banking. He's genius. Um, Carlos um, Mancuso founded his own currency on Sardinia called the Sardex, which is still, it's alive. But it was all these kind of anarchist, retrograde economics professors and thinkers. Well, many, many didn't have PhDs. And we were gathering and we had less in common, Michael, than we thought. So Guido, a friend we'll have on the show sometime, Diane Vincent, who's a big Steiner kind of social threefolding person. We were there and Guido hosted it, but there was factions there. It made me think I was in some movie where uh, the Italians seemed to, be quite different than the Americans, but on the issue of perishable currency, we know this is a big thing for Guido. And you and I both agree it's maybe the greatest idea that you know money should mirror those things it represents, like a bag of goods and should perish. That was an idea that was rejected strongly by a lot of the other people there. They just couldn't see the reason for it. Um, but so we'll have Guido on again and we'll talk about this thing. But it was a mad dash trip. Uh, I haven't been to Europe in a while, and then I had. Uh, the last time I was there taking trains to like small bitty towns, you know, you're, you could talk with live people. Now it's all machined. And then I had to talk with one live person and that took me 45 minutes in the yeah. Rome station. And then uh, I had some travel nightmares like everybody does, but I'm alive and here to tell the tale. Yeah, I guess there was an election in Italy. Was it yesterday? Yeah, what came of that? Yeah, I, I didn't even see the newspaper. Uh, well, let's put it this way. The globalists got 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 a smackdown. Oh, okay. And There's even the World Economic there. Forum, speaking of money, the World Economic Forum was was warning Italy about voting for the wrong people, but they apparently yeah. voted for the wrong people. Good, 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 good. good. For them. <laughs> yeah, I think that's going to be in every case. One thing, everybody there, Michael, at this conference, uh, um, just so you know, like they didn't, I didn't get tested for anything going in, but I was on a train, a nice train, and they said, you know, unless you're with an N94 mask, you could be prosecuted. I didn't have a mask with me. I just didn't know. But um, two things. One, everybody knew that Italy had just been being run by an administrator, Mario Draghi. Nobody at my conference had anything good to say about uh, him or that. And um, the other one is that they all felt that something bad was going to come down in October. So these these economists, they all do believe, uh, you know, the, the, the phrase, CBDC, central bank issued digital currencies, right? Yeah. All these people, and I think they're right. They say it's going in that direction. Um, and I don't know. And this, the social credit idea is not in China alone. All these Italians seem oh, yeah. it's coming well, to their country. I don't know if you caught it, but uh, I don't know if, in, if it's, I think it's in this country too, but PayPal has been shutting down people whose views they don't like. Right, right, right. In organizations um, just because. Yeah. In fact, one of them was... Uh, Gays against groomers, you know what you heard about this group? I did, I did, I did. They shut them down. Hmm. I mean, crazy. You know, but we live in we live in a bizarre world, and this is exactly you know not not to get too off track, but actually there's a connection to our our subject today. Tell us about um, the subject. <clears throat> no, but, but I think uh, 
what we've been talking about with Guido over the last few months, right, mm -hmm. uh, is about how to disrupt the power of those World Economic Forum types, PayPal types, who, in, you know, central bank types, who want to uh, get more and more control over things. And, and, and this goes back, to, I mean, you can see this in our subject today, William Blake. For sure. You know, who, I, if, you, if you just look at him, I mean, this, is, this was, a, in, in his life, he was this heroic figure in isolation. I mean, who, who was, he was no, he was a hero to no one. I mean, he, he was a revolutionary. A Completely revolutionary. unknown by most everybody. Yeah. And nobody knew him. Nope. He was, he was uh, almost a completely anonymous figure in his life. And the people who, many of the people who did know thought he was, he was insane. Yeah. Well, let's talk about William Blake because, uh, and one tie in there, as I kind of leave the notion of this conference I attended is, uh, and there's a connection here with William Blake too. It's the notion that, so this, this idea of perishable currency, like if you're going to do it, you're going rogue. You know, you're not doing it as a sub-circuit in a government-issued money. But most of the other Italians there, I don't think, they're probably former communists and so forth, and I don't think faith was a big thing for almost any of them there. But I did see this, and it's going to tie into William Blake. When you don't have faith in Christ, you can't leave the nanny state. You know, the nanny state does become your God. So most of these so-called anarchists were posers. And I wondered, like, why was I the only radical one there with like Guido and Diane? And I think if you don't have faith, you know, these people, they would want to set up an alternative currency, but they all needed it pegged to the dollar or the euro. And we're the only ones saying, no, cut the cord. You know, eventually we have to grow up. So it's funny. We think of William Blake. If you look at an image of him, I have him on a picture behind me. Um, I'll grab that in a second. But he, he looks like he has a little baby face, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. You know, here's William Blake. See if we can do this. Boom. These are some of my heroes, John Kalpropowis, John Sullivan, Hilary Belloc. And this is William Blake there. And that's, a self, um, that's actually a almost like a baby portrait. face, but he was he was a grown up. That's my big takeaway. He grew up. Right. Uh, and he was a free thinker, you know, but first but, you but he, he yeah. was he grew up, but he never lost what you see also in Thomas Traherne and some other figures. He never lost the ability to see yeah. into the spiritual world. Right. You know, he never lost that. No, nope. no, and he had that sense of wonder, the songs of innocence versus the songs of experience. How did you first become acquainted with William Blake? Uh, um, where he is for you now, then I'll take my stab at that. I was about 22, maybe. Mm -hmm. And this friend of mine said, you know, you remind me of William Blake. And he, and he gave me a copy of Blake's uh, graphic works. Okay. So, and I was, in, I mean, I was intrigued and I was interested actually at the time, the only class by that point, if the only class I'd ever taken in college was, it was a class on printmaking, which, hmm. and I love doing uh, etchings and engravings. That was really a cool process, which is what Blake did. And uh, I wish I could do more of that. That was so much fun. Uh, and so, I, and I think the first thing I read by Blake was Jerusalem. So I, I jumped in at the deep end of the pool. Did you just pick it up one day and say, I want to understand no, this? Um, I think I, after I was intrigued by, by the prince, I went to a Borders bookshop and bought a collected poetry of William Blake. Yeah. And I think, and my friend said, Jerusalem is the best thing he's written. So I said, I'll read that first. Yeah. Which was, <clears throat> you know, you read Jerusalem first. It's like... <laughs> Kind of like walking into somebody else's dream. I, I, but I don't think it's any more <clears throat> difficult than probably everything else, other than songs of innocence and experience. Or uh, no, um, that's his visionary works are, are very challenging. There's challenging and songs of innocence and experience. Like when I teach college students, for instance, even though I'd love to teach Jerusalem, I would be insane to go there uh, without giving students, you know, because most students come to college now with no grounding in poetry at all. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and I, so usually when I start teach a romanticism course, I start with the whole course with songs of innocent experience mm -hmm. and they love it. Yeah. You know, and it's, I mean, it's not only, uh, it, you would think by looking at the poems, the poems in there, that it's very simple, but it's far from both. far, even just like, even think of London's, you know, the charter, yeah. the marriage Hurst. These are bombs. Every single poem has like three time bombs in them. Right. Yeah. And and there's so much, and the thing is, that's why I love uh, what he does is, and I think you see this in Songs of Innocence and of Experience, you see him in dialogue with himself. Because if you read Songs of Innocence, you'll think, oh, he's kind of a Pollyanna. He's all Piper, Piper down, right down the valley's wild. But 
he's he knows there's more to it than that. And when he writes uh, in Songs of Innocence, for example, um, <clears throat> the Divine Image, right? Yep. Well, or <clears throat> and, you know, and in fact, there's a great song. The flip side of that one is the human abstract, right? Well, that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 So he answers himself, right? Yep. He yep. contradicts himself in a way, or he shows the other side of the picture. Uh huh. Right. Just well, I like, think with the human abstract, he's well with the the innocence, right? He's seeing life as maybe Thomas Merton did on the corner of Fourth and Walnut, right? Saturated in God's love, which he called vision. And these other ones are kind of like the way we see, and it is the way the world is, you know, through kind of the fall and the, the songs of experience. Yeah, the fall but is the, a big uh, important thing for him. Yeah. Yeah. And again, for the divine image and the, the human abstract, we have a way of, you know, in, in germinal form, we have a way of looking at the human body as either like a machine or not. And these are still, you know, these issues are as hot today as they've ever been with transhumanism and so mm-hmm. forth. Yeah. And I mean, and he starts, I mean, I shouldn't say he starts, but in all religions are one, you know, that one, right? Yep. The first line from the, you know, the first principle that the poetic genius is the true man and that the body or outward form of man is derived from the poetic genius. Likewise, that the forms of all things are derived from their gene, which by the ancients was called an angel and spirit and demon. Yeah. And he, and that's his starting point, right? And that's, and he never deviates from it. He never deviates from it. And that's why I named my journal, Jesus, the imagination, which comes, it's a a quote from Blake. Yeah. It's a little bit filtered through Kathleen Rain, but it's a, but it's a quote of, it's, it's an allusion to Blake because for Blake, Jesus or the imagination or Jesus, Jesus is the imagination because it's what transforms all things. Right. And this is real tricky stuff, right? We'll, we'll stay with it. And let's, let me insert here kind of a programmatic announcement. The reason we said we'd talk about William Blake today and this kind of just getting some of the pieces together is that next week we have a, we have a guest, Mark Vernon, who's, uh, I encourage people to look at his uh, YouTubes on Dante. And he wrote a book using Barfield called The Secret History of Christianity. Excellent. And Mark Vernon is a scholar in London and he's, really great on William Blake. So I invited him on next, next week to talk, but the, um, the, the notion, you know, and we haven't talked about him too, Michael, but the notion of, again, vision, you know, he very hard to parse out. You, you take a William Wordsworth who, you know, in the, in the sense of Rousseau, virginal right. nature, right. And that makes so much sense to us. We want it. We want to return to nature. Like we want to return to the womb, you know, and then Blake says, no, no. And then he gave us this line, nature red in tooth and claw. Let me mention my friend Guido Preparata again at the conference. Um, and let's connect it to the Catholic church. At the conference, he was saying, you know, he does a lot with uh, entomology. And he's talking about these ants he described to us. But he said, you can go to parts of nature. And he goes, it's evil, you know, and he would, these ants that like, you know, give this propaganda yeah. pheromone to a whole other colony of ants and turn them into a gender free slaves. Yeah. 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 And that he would say he would walk the halls of the Gregorian and he would try to get the best theologians over there to kind of deal with this stuff. And he said they have no way to appropriate it. You know, so William Wordsworth, this whole school and you're more this is more your area of expertise. But William Blake is reminds to an outsider two things. One is, no, we have to raise nature up, like Paul said, through our vision, you know, acquiring this vision. But his uh, his relationship with um, nature is very different than the other romantics, wouldn't you say? Um, yes, because the, <clears throat> he's more of a Platonist, you could say, right? Mm-hmm. Because for him, the real reality is the imaginative reality. Yeah. It's not, um, well, in each one of the, each one of the romantics, you know, I think they have a different relationship to nature. And I think Shelley might be the closest one to Blake. Okay. Nature, nature is a cipher of more imaginative realities um but for for yeah so and you know and the other thing is blake's a city boy (coughs) blake grew up in in lambeth in london and he's you know on the outskirts of london so he still they still had fields and rivers and things but he saw the industrial revolution the real effects of it which is why he wrote london and a lot of the poetry that he wrote is his critiques of of the social order uh, and of the church and of the state (coughs) but uh but on the other hand his his uh one of his earliest visions and, and you know this is was of a he was walking in a field near his home and he saw a tree as a as little boy and saw a tree filled with angels yeah and there's a film I'm trying to 
that they're trying somebody's trying to make it's you mentioned this something yeah a, a new project called on, can't remember see if i can find it it's blake googling it? something it's it's i can't remember what it's called i, I subscribed to them on, on on youtube but i don't see them right now huh. but uh it, it's i think the film they're trying to make is about the writing of jerusalem okay and as you know with, when he wrote jerusalem he was this is the only but the only time he was away from london in his entire life and he was you know kind of uh he had a patron and right. he, of course this is again i feel like this too right <laughs> I, there's so much my personality that takes after him you know so he gets his patron and then he resents having the patron because he's not free right to do what he wants to do this other guy's well you know what i would suggest and it'll, i'll give you some money you know and he, he starts to resent it but what happens is there's some drunken soldier who's coming who wanders into his garden and blake throws him out you know get out of here what are you doing here and he could have been accused for treason he well, and hung in quarter i mean he was he a, was right, he went yeah. to he went to court yeah, for yeah, sedition yeah. and he could have been serious trouble yeah uh, and that's why what, what one of the beautiful things about jerusalem is, is he, in his mythology, all these figures from real life become blended with his imaginative figures like Uriz and then Laws and et cetera, and the Thurman and Jerusalem herself, right? Yep. And uh, the central motif then becomes forgiveness. Right. Right. And, and this is the wine, this is the body, or this is the body, this is the wine. I forgive you you forgive me through all eternity then he gets but then he makes it eucharistic like this is the it's eucharistic but it's also um um it's the it's the the primary imaginative act yeah is forgiveness you know what and i mean wouldn't we say couldn't we water that down you know i always tie it um when i teach college students you know this idea of forgiveness and when simone Vey and that it's you know that essay i think we've mentioned it on the right use of school studies towards a view yeah. of the love of god you know when she takes essentially she flips the whole Catholic imagination, and she'll say, instead of like us with an image of going to heaven or, you know, and seeing St. Peter who says, you did this, or you didn't do that. Simone Vey said, like, when we get to heaven, and this is part of the grail quest, you know, what if we had to ask the right question? You know, what would that question be? And of course, the question of the grail quest is, what are you going through, right? And I've always, in my work, I've watered that down um, when we want to get it, you know, because the imagination, we say, yeah, you have to live in the imagination. Uh, you know, that the ground, the fundamental act of the imagination is putting yourself in another person's place. This is the most liberating thing. When we fall in love and when it's not obsession and things, you know, we're released from the bondage of self and somebody else's reality becomes as real to us as it is to themselves, you know, and we right. have these breakthroughs. Um, Thomas Merton, again, when he had his famous vision, it, you know, he said he saw all of them shining like the sun, Right. But William Blake, so Thomas Merton has this vision, and it's like he saw a whole group of people where they could have easily been reduced to consumers, seems to me. You know, there's nothing that waters us down and takes away our individuality and our personhood more than just becoming mindless consumers. But here's Merton, you know, in the center of a shopping district. And for him, the imaginative vision came, and he saw all of them as if they were the center of the universe, that he was romantically in love with each one of them individually. Do you think that William Blake just kind of sustained this vision? You're more of a poet. Like, how do we um, get our listeners, you know, what's going on there? Uh, well, you know, some, I wouldn't, well, sustained is a weird word. Yeah. It, ne it never went away, is what I think. But I think, uh -huh. I think he struggled with depression, which is, you know, I mean, he, he struggled with poverty, you know, at, at the edges of poverty for his entire life. <laughs> um, yet he still maintained he well he returned to that vision. But I think that's what you see what you see in uh, the juxtapositions between you know the marriage of heaven and hell, right? Or you know where he in, in the marriage of heaven and hell, you could say is almost an anti-Christian book. Right, right. You know, it's a serious critique of the Christian church and of Swedenborg in, partic in particular. I mean, Blake uh, and, and his parents attended the Swedenborgian church where Swedenborg preached. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but but he rebelled against all the conventions. Even, I mean, Swedenborgian, Swedenborgian Christianity is not conventional Christianity, but he rebelled against that. Right. Yeah. So he was revolutionary from to the core to but the core. but you see though in jerusalem i wouldn't call his christianity in there conventional no but it's it's authentic i and think it's where we need to go anymore, yeah right yeah 
It wasn't it, rebellious. The more I read, the more I think he was, you know, I told you how in researching Dostoevsky a little bit recently that um, you had, I think it's an interesting anecdote, but you had, um, oh, Theophane the Recluse was a, a monk, uh, was the greatest compiler of the church fathers uh, in the history of the world, you know, and the Philokalia and all that stuff. And this, this monk was alive when Dostoevsky was alive. And people saw things in Dostoevsky that they said were not contained in the church fathers, right? There was something new. You know, this is mind blowing to me. And I always think, so if this is true, if Dostoevsky saw things that were not seen by the church fathers, we better upgrade our software in one sense. And I think the same thing with William Blake. He was able to see things that I don't think other people saw right. until his time. And we have to, the church might die without some of his insights. I'm just that. And I think that's what sociology is too. You know, yep. and and I in fact I gave a lecture last week to the Institute for Orthodox Christian Studies at Cambridge. Well, I, I saw you. Was that on I, Zoom or what? Was it was. It? I was on Zoom. Everybody else was there. Oh, that's fun. Uh, because there's no way I can leave the farm and my my ailing mother. Yeah. At this time of year, but I, but it was actually it was it was good. But one of the things I told them, you know, in my lecture is that you see figures like Bulgakov and. Uh, so it was actually a conference on Florensky. Okay. So Volkov and Florensky and then Berjayev, you know, they, they, they arrived at these. There's a picture of Bulgakov. There they are. Walking with, there's Bulgakov and Pavel Florensky. Oh, and there's Berjayev, yeah. Jacques Ellul, Ivan Illich, Leon Boy, Stephen Vizinchy. So these students, my students kind of collect these things and give them to me. Yeah. So here's the, 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 point, the point I'm getting to is that those guys came to these insights about what we could call Christian truth that contained uh, artifacts or truths that were not in, that did not have an available structure. Agreed. So the dogmatic structure comes down to us. We have, you know, the dogma of the Trinity, the dogma of salvation, whatever. And here's the Sophia thing. And, and they're like, well, it doesn't fit in our categories. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Where do we put this? And so must be heresy if we can't find a place to put it. Uh-huh. Nobody ever says maybe we, we don't have enough categories, right? Yep, yep. And I think Blake is like that, and I think that's why I include in a, a book, the Heavenly Country, which is an anthology, uh, his his poem Jerusalem, or this the 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 prologue to uh, Milton, which is you know called Jerusalem, which is yeah the song, the, no, the unofficial uh, unofficial uh, um, national anthem of Great Britain. Till we have seen Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant. Till we built Jerusalem. I first heard it when Charlotte Church. Remember that singer was wowing the world. A young girl. She did. I first heard it when I was a gosh, I was thirteen or something with Emerson Lake and Palmer's version. Really? I I can I can remember. I forgot that existed actually. And I had no idea who William Blake was. I just thought it was this cool prog tune, right? Yeah. Yeah. That, and again, reminding that, people that was probably my real introduction to Bill, William Blake, but I had no idea it was William Blake. Yeah. This Mark Vernon, who we're having on next week, if people can find his webpage, or at the latest, we'll post it next week. <laughs> but uh, he did these videos on, like, you know, we both have an interest in Rudolf Steiner, you know, and he's always updating the festivals. But uh, Mark Vernon had these videos on, like, Easter for William Blake and Christmas, of really mind blowing stuff. And again, there's, so for me, you know, how did I get exposed to him? One was that um, recently I discovered that when we talk about social threefolding in Rudolf Steiner, we've alluded to it. And we're going to go a deep dive on that at some point. But he, you know, he thought the body politic uh, was a human body. Right. And that he um, for Steiner and he, he knew it had the components associated with the metabolic, uh, metabolic system, the nervous system and the circulatory system. He said they're all over, you know, they relate, but they're all independent. And I discovered that William Blake saw the same social threefolding. His his categories, you know, the one Golganuza, his yeah. city of the imagination. The other one is Alamanda and Baula Huza. You know, he had all these talking these crazy ass words, excuse my French, but um, he, he intuited the same thing. And something that I want your feedback on, Michael, is that um, one of the greatest secondary works of literature ever written, I'm convinced, is Northrop Fry on William Blake in a book called Fearful Symmetry. I'm on my fourth reading wow. in this year and still taking in so much more. But I saw it in this poetry. But Northrop Fry, um, if anybody knows any of my writings that say Front Porch Republic, I did a series on, to me, I, it just got in my crawl one time. But why we see everything in the world, you know, if the universe is so big, we're so small. Great. 
but we could go exactly the other way. You know that, and if you go to these websites called the scale of the universe, you find them that in the known universe, we're actually bigger than the smallest thing we know, like the Planck length, that we are smaller than the biggest thing we know. But of course, it can go infinitely in both dimensions. So that had been, it was just a it bothered me, you know, and I knew the scientific establishment, not science, but the for-profit scientific establishment, yep. specifically with some of its profits, like uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson and others who just annoy the shit out of me. Let's call it Science Inc. Okay, yeah. But there, there's an agenda, you know, and we can quote Stephen Hawking in this thing, too, that we're just pond scum in a huge universe. But just, I just wanted people to say, hey, imagination <laughs> is putting yourself into another person's place. Or it's the ability to see yourself as big or small. So Thomas Mann, the great German novelist, he's focused on this. Um, but And I've traced it in Chesterton and so forth. But we need every time somebody tries to convince you that you're this tiny amount of pond scum in a cold, hostile universe. Well, just flip the script and say you can go the other way, like Horton hears a who. And you can say how big we are in a relatively small world. But the ability to see it both ways is crucial for this thing called the imagination. And Northrop Fry says, Blake saw this same thing and he saw this endless space and endless time, clock time and endless space. Those were the definition of the enemy for him, for all things spiritual, you know? And because, so for him, the universe was, was a human body, right? Um, It's, and we have to turn ourselves inside out. Metanoia is turning ourselves inside out and we would see the whole universe as a human body, you know, and this is central to him. And for me, I'm easing my way into this, but it's a worldview that I'll, I'll, I hope everybody takes the plunge, but it starts to make more and more sense, right? But he, he saw this, this you know, <clears throat> grid type of space as the most deadening thing to the human imagination. So if you're a scientist and you're not practicing seeing ourselves as big every time somebody convinces you we're small, and at least balancing that, you're never going to have the imagination. You're going to be a lousy father and mother, all those things, because um, Blake saw that this was systematically ruining our minds. And another author I hope to have on here sometime, his name is Roderick Tweedy. He wrote a brilliant book on Blake that Ian McGilchrist said was the best book on Blake written in the last 80 years, but it's called uh, William Blake in the Left Hemisphere, that this, this creature called Urizen, Urizen, Urizen. Reason. Um, this is the left brain, that technocratic way of thinking gone rogue. And we're, the, Blake saw it all with precision and clarity. Tell me about this universe as a human body. How do you read that as a poet yourself? Um, <laughs> it's the body of Christ. It's a very yeah. traditional understanding yeah. of things. Oh, great. Yep, yep. You know, it's it's the anima mundi, right? Uh-huh. The soul of the world. And and it's very, you know, uh, congruent with the, with the idea of the microcosm and the macrocosm. Right, right, alive, right. right? Yep. And all things are alive. Um, and, you know, and I see his, uh, his condemnation of, Bla- of Bacon, Newton, and Locke. They're the three antichrists. Right. The, yep. the, the unholy trinity is, 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 is super important. And that also puts him in, uh, he frames him as an ally of Goethe. Yeah. Can you imagine those two guys having a conversation? That'd be great. But again, you know? two of the most important thinkers in the last 500 years. Absolutely. And I think um, and both were poets, right? Yeah. yeah. And and both are poets, and I think probably the most original scientific and religious thinkers uh, of almost anybody. Yeah. Um, and because if you look at, uh, well, so they both, so you could say, so in, in uh, Faust part two, at the end where Faust is, you know, Faust is damned. He's screwed up. And according to the rule book, right, the dogmatic rule book, mm-hmm. he should go to hell and he deserves to go to hell. But what happens in, at the end of Faust part two is Gretchen, this girl he ruins in the first part of Faust, prays for his salvation mm-hmm. from purgatory or from heaven, wherever she is, she's in heaven. And then then the, the virgin, the, the Mater Dolorosa comes, the mother of sorrows. Uh-huh. Might have, I'm sorry, he calls her the Mater Gloriosa, the Glorious Mother. It's Sophia, right? Yep. And she and they save him from from uh, from hell. And I'm sure David Bentley Hart loves that part because yeah. it's universalism writ large. Uh-huh. Um, and Blake is right there with him, right? Because that's Gretchen forgives him. It was what contributes to his salvation, right? And so Blake in Jerusalem, right? And uh, Jerusalem is the emanation of the giant Albion. It, she, uh, Jerusalem in the poem is, or the epic is, 
you know, and, and he, this great idea he has of these emanations. So Albion is England, who's fallen asleep. And, be, and because he's deluded, what happens in Blake, and I think this is brilliant, brilliant in psychology. Uh, when, when a figure is deluded, there's a separation. And you can almost feel it when you're reading through the poems, right, where it tears out of the body. So it goes from this, uh, it's almost, and this is an idea he got, I'm certain, from Yaka Burma. Mm-hmm. in his writings about uh, the separation of Adam and Eve when, when Eve is taken out by the, by the rib, right? So it's the emanation. So this goes, I mean, this is why the Jungians love, love Blake so much because that's the thing right there, right? Is we have to become integrated again. And so, and I think that you see in Jerusalem a very uh, similar thing to what goes on in Faust part two, where the task is to... To, to awaken and reintegrate. And the key to that in Jerusalem is forgiveness. And mm-hmm. it's also forgiveness of the self, right? Right. So, and forgiveness is not, you know, I got into an argument on Facebook with a friend of mine the because, because I, you know, I posted something where was this nurse uh, who was in tears testifying because she was seeing all these kids come into the hospital with myocarditis and was wondering why the, the hospital was not reporting it to VAERS. Mm-hmm. And she got fired because she questioned. Wow. Right? Wow. And I said, you know, a lot of people need to be ashamed because of this. And he, my friend's like, you're, you're basically, you're a Christian. You should just forgive. No, no, that's not how it works. Right, right, right. Right. When Christ said, Father, forgive them, it's because they were doing it to him. Yep. I don't forgive people on behalf of other people. You know, yeah, I don't, it, this is not like, oh, my bad. I think we'll all learn from this. Too bad you're crippled, right? Really, I'm going to go off and screw somebody else over that's not what forgiveness is and that's that's what what blake he's arguing in jerusalem is that it's it's you have you have to be injured in order to forgive right right and which is not that's why it's the ultimate christian and ultimate imaginative act don't you think don't you think blake you know chesterton said this you know chesterton came after blake wrote a book on blake and wondered about his madness you know i had to read chesterton on blake because Chesterton struck me as maybe the sanest person. But um, the point about it is, you know, Chesterton said tolerance is the mask of forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is the real hearty one. Tolerance is this kind of like mealy mouth. It's, yeah, it's kind of yeah. gray. And that's, what, you know, what would- It's our culture's have, favorite words, right? Yeah, and that's what you're, that's what kind of a distinction you're making is everybody's just confusing tolerance and forgiveness. Tolerance forgiveness is, is bullshit, very fleshy. Yeah. Right, right. Um, Kathleen Rain in an essay or a book called Golganuza, huh. She said that William Blake was the only poet in history to make, oh, I wish I had the exact quote, but really like the problem of science, <laughs> his major theme. That's pretty major coming from Kathleen Rain. But it's yeah. to say for, you know, this is one of the parts of Blake that interests me and maybe for our listeners is that um, this world where the outside world is dead, you know, he called that deism. And he thinks again, that the scientific viewpoint, which, uh, has to kill in order to, you know, to understand. But when we take, you know, cold, heartless space, uh, trees that are out there, not be held with the imagination, but be held by what he called the ratio, the ratio, just these kind of fallen visions. So a connection, everybody knows, I do a lot of reading with Ivan Illich. He, he was seminal on the fact of like what happened in modernity when we saw ourselves as passive receivers of things. You know, right. that um, Kepler just said, uh, you know, that light comes into our eyes and it's almost as if we just have to take it on the chin. And Illich knew that, you know, in the old monastic practice of custody of the eyes, that there was an outward going force of vision as well as a you know a passive one. You know, and you know, Michael, you've raised daughters. You could look at your daughters in one way or another and they will come out completely different. The outward going vision is hugely important. And, you know, Blake wants to say, he wants to raise this to a, a fever pitch of wrath and condemnation to say that this fallen vision that we've been stupefied into taking, where it's just science and we receive everything, will be the apocalyptic end of the world. It is. And he said, and he said, you know, most of even Catholic faith, it's become this kind of disease thing called religion. You know, dis- and again, he has this negative connotation of the use of religion that really resonates with me. You know, I've been writing lately on how religion in this sense especially as it's attracting so many anxious young people who struggle with, say, OCD, this is the disease that Jesus came to cure. What right. Blake called religion is what Jesus and Blake saw it the same way. Well, and he's we, right. I mean, in my, the marriage of heaven and hell, one of my favorite aphorisms from there is that prisons are built with the, with the stones of law, brothels with the bricks of religion. Yeah. Right. 
bingo. I mean, that's, I mean, he, he, I mean, this is pretty amazing for a guy who didn't go to school, right? Crazy, crazy. Uh, that he was so, in, so such an insightful psychologist, mm-hmm. you know, that so, you know, and I, I see this too. What, um, you know, I would like, like Derrida, I would like to see a religion without religion. Right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Because you can see how it poisons people's thinking. If it does. it's unregenerated, which is why this is called the Regeneration Podcast, right? Yeah. If if their thinking about religion is unregenerated, it becomes an idol. Like you know, you remember the, the I wrote a blog about it. And I got a lot of cut a lot of flack from the Ortho Bros because the 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 image I had as the masthead for that blog post was uh, this meme that was out there, and it's a uh, Orthodoxy Christianity only harder. <laughs> that's great you know and i didn't make that meme and so like, people were getting how can you say that? i said but if they just heard the the cherubicon they would know how beautiful orthodoxy is no 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 because get, and this is something actually from uh you know robert taft yeah. the jesuit and my, a friend of mine who's a priest was in rome at the time and taft was teaching at the, at the Gregorian. and my friend's a byzantine priest and they had liturgy someplace and it was beautiful you you know had robert taft all these theologians this d catholic priest and the Byzantine liturgy is the orthodox liturgy and it was beautiful and afterwards taft said yeah it was a really beautiful liturgy but guess what you can still go to hell by having a beautiful liturgy Uh it doesn't keep you from from hell there's something else right 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 we're supposed to do here and and i think um i i owe i don't we but i owe a lot to william blake it forming the way I think about things. And I think the way he saw science was dead on. He saw where it was going. And this is why, uh, what's his name? Uh, Thomas Altizer, the death of God guy. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book, which I've been trying to get. It's re- it's hard to find and it's super expensive if you can't find it. It's called Blake's Apocalypse. Oh, okay. Right? Because that's where, that's what, what, ha- what happens when you have a fallen world that ignores half of creation. It ignores the supernatural. Yeah. That's a scientific trap that's your reason. Which when you see that famous print, which people is reproduced all the time and people don't realize it's the bad guy of your reason drawing on the face of the deep with the compass, right. right? And that's a bad thing for Blake. It is. Because yeah. it 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 circumscribes reality and it cuts mm-hmm. off. There's something outside of that circle. And now we're only looking inside the circle, which is what science does, right? Yep. Which is what Bacon, Newton, and Locke do. Or, yeah. Well, let's get, yeah. let's use that as a... a because you'll be great on this too, but you know, I was thinking, listening to you, that one of the things that we need to do, I think, you know, uh, worked for the church for so many years, is is the change of musical register. But Blake doesn't see things so much in terms of like good or bad. It's like it's his categories are alive and dead. You know, I'm thinking Stephen Soundtime has a great song. You know, what a brilliant lyricist, uh, almost Blakean in some of his poetry. But it's just a song called "Being Alive," right? And that speaks to young people now. You know, everybody feels dead. And the whole point is somebody pull me up short. Somebody force me to care. Somebody break my heart. You know, somebody ruin my sleep. I want to be able to feel alive. And so if that is a feeling that you feel, Blake is your poet, right? And so this thing called religion, unless it can make us more alive, and the most alive is the person who is firing on all cylinders. I tell people in my classes that, um, you know, my hero, John Copper Powis, wrote a chapter called The Illusion of Dead Matter in a book called The Complex Vision. And it's a seminal chapter, but he made it, Powys, who was a poetic genius himself and a person of deep vision, it came together when I was reading that, that like a depressed person, and I probably said this before here, but you know, these French depressed poets, they'll say things like the walls mock me. So I think it's probably verifiable in some way that to somebody firing on all cylinders, who's alive like William Blake, they see matter as alive. When we're depressed, meaning we're not functioning, at a high level, matter looks more dead and congealed. Right. You know, and these are the categories he works in. He saw everything is so alive. Um, you know, and again, I think I'm trying to seed people as we'll continue to talk about William Blake, that like, if these ideas interest you, if you feel in this post-COVID world that you're just dead, um, well, Blake gives us the playbook to shift this whole religion talk into categories of like being alive. You're the most yeah, alive yeah. person. And this is, I mean, I, 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 I'm probably the seed was planted by William Blake when I was 23. But um, what you, you know, and in in my own my scholarly work and all my other books, you know, there's a, there's this theme of the critique of science, 
mm-hmm. which is stems right from this because I mean my doctorate is in 17th century English literature and those guys were in the midst of the scientific revolution and the figures that I'm really interested in are those who were resisting like uh Henry and Thomas Vaughan, the, the metaphysical poet and his uh, alchemist, uh, Anglican priest brother, twin brother, or uh, Robert Flood, who, whom I wrote about in The Submerged Reality, who was a scientist and a Paracelsian was, and was resisting the, the scientific revolution. because And what they were resisting was that uh, the scientific revolution was restricting reality to only the material, yeah. right? And, and that was... The ep- and Blake was railing against the same thing, and so was Goethe. Right. Right. So, and then right later, after both of those figures, you get to Rudolf Steiner. That's mm-hmm. Rudolf Steiner's whole rap yep. is, you know, is, you know, and he and Steiner thought, well, we have to go through this material to get to the light, but maybe we won't. Right. And I think what we've seen in the last couple of years with COVID hysteria is the apotheosis of that scientism. Science is the new faith. Well, right? real, let's hold that word. Go ahead, science. Government's the new God and science is the articles of faith, uh-huh. right? And we know it's it's BS, right? Because we've seen it. It's been exposed now. And maybe not everybody is ready, willing to admit that. It's like telling, you know, it's like trying to admit there's no God. Well, your God's not a God. Your God is science. It's not uh-huh. even a thing, right? right? Um, and uh, so and, and I'm, so I'm, I'm happy to see it falling apart but it's, it has they you know like like happens you know it's connected to money right as we know right now so and it, as you went through over the weekend or over the last week right so the science is connected to money connected to government those are all things that blake was resisting right being part of because they are false gods and and even for him religion could be a false god absolutely because it doesn't it 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 serves up a set of proscriptions or dogmas that, as we saw in that quote I used from *The Marriage of Heaven and Hell*, that can be that can turn into poisons. Mm-hmm. Like, like brothels are built with the bricks of religion. You you can you know what he's talking about, yeah. Right? And you say it's the same thing with uh, you were talking about uh, perishable currency earlier. The whole idea with perishable currency is if it's not flowing, it breeds poison and disease, mm-hmm. right? And if it's moving. It basically waters the economy. But if it doesn't water the economy, it's collects in one spot and becomes fetid and corrupted and filled with monsters. Yeah. yeah. Which is and it's true. It's absolutely yeah. true. Blake, too, don't you think there's, you know, I want to two things for your feedback. One is when you use the word scientism, you and I both have, even before we met each other, thought possibly scientism in the use of some people's hands. Uh <laughs> we get what they're saying, but it still gives away too much. You know, you have even quoted like Bishop Barron as, you know, they they're so again science big science is everybody's god so even so much of the language of scientism is the problem not science i think you and i both think that the people who use that are still selling the farm well you know remember a few years ago i mean you know uh, al cresta yeah yeah he came on retreat at the abbey one time well he he would i remember him and i don't because he lives not far from here yeah um and so you get his radio station here and i'd happen to hear him interviewing francis collins Oh, the uh, NIH guy or something? Yes. Yeah. And, and they were parading him out, you know, because he's a Christian. He's a committed Christian. <laughs> they parade him out, out, and I'm listening to his rap, and I said, this guy's no committed Christian. Who are you kidding me? This, guy, this guy's religion is science. And, of course, he, as we saw over the last couple of years, he's one of the main architects of shutting down the opposition. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's, I mean, that's not very Christian. No. Nope. Of course, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of people like that. But I just, I couldn't buy it. You know, they they would wheel him out, and they'd wheel out what's guy, what's his name, the guy at the Vatican Observatory. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know, uh, they wheel yeah. all these people out, like, and they they even. Why don't you just tell me Thomas Malthus was a priest? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Come on, big deal. I agree. Big I agree. deal. Yeah. The um, it kind of connects too for William Blake is that the science piece. You know, I, we haven't mentioned it, but a huge organizing principle for him were words like uh, liberty and tyranny, right? right? You couldn't separate religion from liberty for him. And you Mind couldn't separate false religion. Yes. And so he, um, you know, he knows too, he could see that, um, you know, there's only two questions that really interest me in the world that kind of get me off in religious thinking and 
probably the rest. But the religious one, you know, is why is there something rather than nothing? Blake had that wonder. But the other one is getting so important in our time is who's going to police the policeman, right? right? You know, that William Blake, he he loved liberty so much. We're all being ruled by technocrats, you know, and we're, we've now trust the FBI to like police themselves and the CIA to police themselves, right. science to police itself. This is crazy. I want more vote back. You know, one nice thing about the conference is that, uh, there's these people from Switzerland. And again, they still have something of direct democracy. It failed in the face of ruthless propaganda on some of the COVID narrative, but it got pretty close. I think you just need 60,000 signatures to get something on a referendum for the national law. That's pretty cool. And people still believe in it. But the um, but it, it, the, the William Blake would be shocked to see how mindlessly or mind forged, you would say, that we just, we trust all these Things, you know, just because they were experts, experts, um, I can't handle it, you know, and, and what Blake can do is kind of rekindle that love of liberty in yourself where you just, you find yourself reading him and you have courage to stand up for things, you know. I mean, really, he's like, he's in the Christian Anarchist Hall of Fame. For sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it really, in a way, you can say Christian anarchism starts with William Blake. I don't disagree. I don't disagree. You know, I, 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 I think it was actually around before that, but Gerard Winston. Well, possibly with Jesus, not to be trite. You know, but, that's, uh, but that's preparata's work too. It's great. How often the church has or to kind Saint of Francis, take, right? Yeah. You know, we told the story, I think, before of St. Francis. No, maybe we didn't. You know, it happened when he went to convert the sultan. While he was away from the, from, from the monks, they decided to professionalize a little bit. Yeah, yep. and he gets back to to, to the money. He's like, "What happened here, you guys? It's like an office building. This what did, you got? You have a, a board of directors. What is this?" And he just sat down on the floor. He wouldn't even sit on a chair, and he and he threw ashes on his food to eat it. And he he wouldn't even live. He wouldn't live with the monks anymore after that. Good on Francis. Yeah. And they were selling out. He was still alive. Yep. Right. Yep. So these are uh, these are all reasons to. Uh, continue to tune in, right? So next week, I encourage people to look up this Mark Vernon, V-E-R-N-O-N. Um, check out some of his YouTubes. He's interviewed a very gracious guy. I'm happy that we get to have him on. But you and I both hope, right, Michael, that um, we, you know, that will punctuate, Blake will be weaving back in and out in major ways. So today was a little bit of a conversation, how we, you know, first got connected with him. We're starting a deep dive next week. And we're not not saying it's a week of five in a row, certainly not that, but just like our friend Guido, uh, bringing things back in, certain themes, yeah. and make it, maybe going for a deeper dive. That work for you? Works for me. What's your weekend like? Uh, well, it's Michaelmas weekend for us. Right, right. How many people? So we have our big Michaelmas festival on Sunday. I saw the dragon's head. Looks good. I mean, yeah, that was, that was actually my, my two boys. Hit, they were like, this is kind of stupid. Then we made it. They're like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, we got a bunch of people coming to the farm on Sunday. What do you serve for the meal? Oh, what's well, a potluck? Cool. Because I never know who's going to come. No. But what's kind of cool is right now, uh, it's the end of the season coming down. So some of the things are coming in that we haven't had. Like yesterday, Bonnie picked uh, a bushel full of grapes and she'll mm. make, she's going to make uh, grape jelly from. And there's a lady up the road who gives out away all these pears. So I made some pear wine that will become pear brandy when it's grown up. Pear, apples, and grapes are the only three fruits that just ferment naturally, right? Um, I don't know. I think mulberries do too. Okay. Maybe others do. So, so yeah. So I'm uh, and I made some. Oh, check this out. So I made some mead. I'm mm -hmm. in, the, in the process of making some mead, and it should be ready by the holidays. And but I, I'm flavoring it. It's, a, it's called a methaglint, the technical term. Okay, I wouldn't know how um, to pronounce that when I see it written. But I'm flavoring it with juniper berries and spruce branches. Huh. So it should have a Christmassy vibe to it. Yeah. Well, it's really, it's it's that, in fact, I'm, today I, went ahead, I had to wear two coats when I went to milk the cow. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so it's kind of a fun time that way. And the, and the winter squash started coming in. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of a different, different change. And it was interesting that I don't know about there, but probably where the first day of autumn felt like autumn. Yep. And the day before, it still felt like summer. Yeah, but um, we're, we're going to see some hot temperatures here, about 100%. And we, I want people to think, listeners too, that, um, you know, the, the culture is kind of dying in real time. But this notion that you're doing at Michaelmas, you know, I, when I mentioned those other questions, like why is there something rather than nothing that interests me? But there's this, this notion too of how 
how did, and this comes from Steiner, but how did those festival spirits develop that we have a unique feeling associated with Christmas? We don't, sadly, in the States have a unique feeling for Epiphany like they still maintain in Italy. Right. We have a unique feeling for Easter. And again, most of these have gotten corrupted. Yeah. But you know it's possible to have a unique feeling this time of year for a festival of courage that can, you know, but the whole notion, we need to be open that there could be festivals for our grandkids that have all the same complex of feelings, but in a different musical register than Christmas. Yeah, but we need a colorful calendar and we don't have it. You know, Michael Miss would be the first one. That was one of uh, Rudolf Steiner's great contributions was yeah. rethink, not, not rethinking, but reinvigorating or reimagining the, the, the festival year. Yeah. And connecting it back to the cosmos. And it's hard to think that we we have something we can do. We can make clock time drab that, you know, William Blake hated. Again, yeah. saw it as evil. This endless clock time. So in religious circle, Kronos versus Kairos. But the um, we need to reclaim the year. We need to put color in our years. Everybody's dying of boredom and depression. Um, there's a because movie it's... Paul Newman made, or Robert Redford, called the Milagro Beanfield War. Have you ever seen that? I don't think I know. I know it, but I don't, haven't seen it. It's a really great movie, but I just remembered it when I saw it. I wasn't. I think I was studying theology, but it really caught uh, you know a colorful festivals in kind of pagan meets Catholic culture, the American Southwest. And that's that will be the salvation of the Christian Church. It will be, and it's what people are hungry for. Nobody wouldn't want to have I, these things. And actually, I'm thinking I got to figure out the way way to phrase it, but. That's what I'm thinking. The next theme for Jesus, the imagination will be something along the liturgical. And actually, so, and because I, I want to connect it to these, the, I have to figure out the correct right way to put it. But not only those kinds of festival and folk customs, or even neo-pagan Christianity, can what I practice here, but also connecting the, these ideas we've been talking about with it, with the economy. Because what yeah. I think about it is all those things are parts of an economy. Absolutely. A household of things. So so watch out for my new announcement for a call for, for submissions for Jesus' imagination, which will probably be coming out in a couple of weeks. Awesome. Look forward to it. All right. Okay. So uh, uh, we will look forward to seeing everybody next week. Uh, Michael Martin and Mike Sauter signing off on the Regeneration Podcast. Take it easy.